Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Joelle Fiss is a researcher and analyst based in Geneva, Switzerland, and has served in various positions for the European Parliament. Twenty years ago, as a college student, she served as president of the European Union of Jewish Students, and in that role attended the World Conference Against Racism, more commonly known as Durban, for the city in South Africa where it took place. Her horrific experience as a Jewish student there led her to write Durban Diaries, in which she recounts in brutal detail the vitriol she and other Jews faced and for which that conference has become notorious. Joelle is with us now to shed some light on why AJC is urging countries to boycott an upcoming anniversary event during the United Nations General Assembly next week. Joelle, welcome. Thank you very much. So tell us, how did this World Conference on Racism come about? How was it billed? Why did you choose to attend? Well, you know, I was the president of the European Union for Jewish Students, as you mentioned. We were an organization representing many people, and we were very well connected to the international policy youth circles. We were a member of the European Youth Forum. We attended the European preparations of the conference that was organized by the Council of Europe in Strasbourg. We were very well versed on the subject. We had concrete experience on the matter. So for us, it was quite obvious that we had a role to play and that we were there to attend seriously. And when you say you were well-versed in the subject, what subject? What, What did you anticipate addressing there? Well, we were there really to combat the universal scourge of racism and discrimination. And we had many allies within many youth organizations that had the same ideas as us. And we were really there to combat all different forms of discrimination with a particular sensitivity around discrimination and racism in Europe, obviously, because that is the geographic scope that we knew the best. But we were really there to fight racism and to share our expertise on the matter. Were you necessarily there to address anti-Semitism? Anti-Semitism was a form of incitement and hatred. So we were there to also speak about that, not exclusively that. We had protests against far right wing populist parties in Europe that had many different intolerant discourses that didn't only concern the Jewish community, but many different communities. So when did you realize that the program description for this conference was not quite accurate? (laughs) So we had no idea that the program description was inaccurate. I mean, yes, we had heard sort of echoes. Oh, this might be a problematic conference. But, you know, we were progressive, liberal, universalist. We thought that people who might fear multilateralism in general might be, you know, skeptical about the conference. But this was not at all our positioning. We were multilateralists. And so we had no idea at all. Okay, so you arrive. When did you and your fellow travelers, not just Israelis, but the Jewish participants at the conference, when did you realize you were targets? I think that we were very naive because it came as a surprise to us that people started already speaking about this 1975 resolution declaring Zionism was racism. You know, we had a vague recollection that it had been adopted and that it had been rescinded in 91. We didn't know much more than that. 
We also had very different views on the Middle East as a delegation. Some were left-wing, some were right-wing, some were Zionists, some were anti-Zionists. We had no intention of speaking about the rise of the Second Intifada. We had not prepared any speaking points on the Middle East. So for us, you know, all of this politicization of racism, it really, we were not aware that this would be. And so we noted quite quickly that people were saying that to defeat racism, you have to defeat Israel. To defeat Israel, you have to defeat the Jews because the Jews uphold the moral system and they are the guarantors of Zionism. And so all of this happened very progressively. I wouldn't say it happened at all the first day. You know, the first day we saw that Israel, yes, Israel was being criminalized. And then the second day we saw that Speaking out against Zionism was crucial to upholding your moral compass. And then we started realizing that the Jewish people were associated to Israel. And then we started realizing that these Jews had names and that they were collaborators of the regime, you know. And then the last day we were accused of being murderers. And, you know, it started as being a sort of light discomfort and it became an issue of physical security. And we became sort of, you know, worried on the last days that we were physically insecure and that the Jewish community had bodyguards around us. And, you know, that it didn't fall from the sky. And I think that to answer your question, when did we start realizing how serious it was? I think it was when we started seeing swastikas appearing more frequently. We started seeing, you know, Hitler being quoted. We started seeing that Jews were the new Nazis. That's when it started becoming a bit more problematic. Okay, we don't want to exaggerate the harm and we don't want to exaggerate the focus on Israel because it wasn't all about Israel. As you wrote in Durban Diaries, hundreds of Indians came to denounce the caste system. Many NGOs fought for recognition of the transatlantic slave trade as a crime against humanity. They were calling for formal apologies from the countries who participated. But were those examples of racism called out to the same degree as the allegations against Israel? Great question. So what's clear is that the location of South Africa as the host country of the conference was very important for symbolic reasons. And everybody felt that because, you know, people were there to denounce slavery and colonialism and apartheid. But quickly, Israel became the way to fight against those historical facts. And it was the only way to sort of ensure that you have a moral stance that was irreproachable. And so it was really in the name of anti-racism, in the name of human rights, in the name of universality, which I think that what was the most painful to us, because, you know, the Jewish delegation, we just craved to fight racism as universal human beings, but we were reduced to being a symbol, you know. And so that's what was very hard because we wanted to be universal and we did not want to be specific and we did not come for a specific human rights concerned, we came for universal causes, you know, but we were reduced to that. But of course, it's clear that the location of South Africa did frame the debate. That's for sure. You mentioned apartheid, and that's certainly a word that's being thrown around now to describe Israel. I'm curious if that word came up in the context of Israel there 20 years ago. Yes, it did, because Israel was the apartheid regime that had to fall down in order for the whole system to be discredited. And so you had to discredit Israel to be able to be credible and legitimate from a moral point of view. And so Israel was constantly framed as being an apartheid state. 
But then, you know, the discourse changed as well. So it changed and it became more Nazi Germany. But there were posters everywhere associating Israel with the former South African regime. And then we started realizing, okay, now we're entering something new because the Arab Lawyers Union, they were selling the protocols of the Elder of Zion. And we realized that, you know, there were more and more swastikas that were superposed on the Star of David and uh, Jews were soaked in blood and they were the new Judeo-Nazis pointing their rifles at terrified Palestinians. And so this became a thing. So you just mentioned one particular Arab lawyers organization. You described in Durban Diaries T-shirts and banners and kiosks. I mean, clearly this was premeditated and carefully orchestrated beforehand. But by whom? Hmm. We don't know. What we do know is that the first uh, swastikas that we saw and the protocol of the elders of Zion and all this, that was really on the stand of the Arab Lawyers Union. So that we're sure of. So we also had tense encounters with the Natura Carta, who is an ultra-religious, orthodox, anti-Zionist Jewish sect. We don't know to what extent they were collaborating with other groups, such as the Arab Lawyers Union. I think they were funded by the Iranian regime, but when, you know, that is yet to be also discussed. So they were there and they were very active. And then a few days after the UN conference against racism, we saw in the South African Sunday Times that one author of the pamphlet equating Jews with Hitler was actually a member of the Muslim community of Durban. He was called Yusuf Didat and he was very close to bin Laden. So, you know, these are little bits and pieces of information that we managed to collect. Actually, when writing the diaries, I found, you know, some info on this, but it's hard to know more. You know, I encountered, for example, one member of the Hezbollah, for example, who was under a tent and he thought that I was Arab and uh, he started chatting with me. And I'm not sure how organized it was and I'm not sure how the people that we encountered and sort of who were quoted in the press afterwards or this Arab Lawyers Union, I'm not sure how concerted their actions were or if it was just one big mess and chaos and they all sort of met there and profited of the moment of anarchy to get their actions going. So the United States and Israel walked out of the conference. At what point did they walk out? And do you remember that day? So... I remember that we were the first ones to boycott, right? Because there were three components of this conference. There was the youth summit, and then there was the NGO summit, and then there was the governmental summit. And so as we were the youth, we had to take action first before everybody else. And so we really didn't want to boycott the youth summit, but we had to. And it's very weird because, you know, as I said before, we were perceived often as being very progressive within the Jewish world. We had liberal ideas. We had a lot of open mindedness. It characterized our political positions. For example, questions related to the Middle East or the European Union or the peace process. And we were still viewed by the young NGOs as being neocons at the service of the Sharon and the Bush governments. And, you know, whatever we did, uh, we were neocons and that was it. And so we had to boycott and it reinforced that stereotype. And then, of course, the NGO, the Jewish caucus within the NGO summit also boycotted and then the governments boycotted. And to be honest, when the governments boycotted, I was personally reassured. So I was thinking, OK, it means that I'm not completely crazy because I was so 
self-conscious of my decision to have to boycott the youth summit. And then after the collective boycott of the Jewish caucus of the NGO forum, we were also still feeling self-conscious. And then when the government actually did the same thing as us, it reassured me. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm not going crazy. What I saw, I saw and governments agree. And so it provided a sense of support and comfort, you know. When I read Durban Diaries, I noted the date that you returned home, and I realized that perhaps one of the reasons why the conference got very little news coverage was that you returned on September 11th, 2001. But there was also a fair share of conspiracy theories about the role of Israel and the Jewish community. Uh, There was a fair share of disdain toward the United States when it was attacked on that day. How did the sentiments expressed in Durban feed into that? Can, Can you help us understand that connection? Yes. So by coincidence, we arrived back on the 11th. What happened was the youth members, sort of our gang who had gone through all of this, we decided to rent a villa for a few days and just enjoy the sun and have some fun and unwind. And so by coincidence, we came back on the 11th of September, you know, and we literally came back. I think it was what a couple of hours before the attacks. So I was unpacking with a friend in my house. You know, we just put CNN as a background noise. And then all of a sudden we saw what was happening. And our reaction was very bizarre because we felt we were coming back from a war zone and that we were disconnected from everyone. And then we saw, you know, the planes crash into the Twin Towers. Nothing surprised us to a certain degree because we had just witnessed such craziness. We had witnessed the presence of Islamic networks at a UN conference. We had witnessed hatred of Jews. We had witnessed a clash of values that had been heightened. So we were in a state already of heightened emergency. And we saw this on our screens. And it was just the heightenedness of the emergency that was being just shared worldwide. You know, what we had witnessed at an internal level was being externalized on TV. And so it was all very bizarre. You know, and then other people were linking the events in a way that, you know, for us was absurd. So, for example, I would hear, oh, but of course the Americans were attacked. They boycotted a conference against racism. So, of course, you know, the Twin Towers happened because they boycotted an anti-racism conference, you know. <laughs> and so it's just, of course, yes, the events of Durban were overshadowed by 9-11. And rightly so, rightly so. 9-11 was much more important than the events of Durban. Let's not get our priorities wrong. It's obvious. However, we just did witness a sense of, you know, confusion that was then heightened when the whole world became confused. And that's it. That's how I would see the link. That does make a lot of sense. Okay, so where are we now? Was this a precursor of what is to come in terms of rising anti-Semitism? Was this just a fluke? You know, the Middle East was probably in a better place in 2001 than now. I mean, so much has happened in 20 years. And, you know, okay, yes, there was the second intifada that was occurring at the same time as the Durban conference. But we were still basking in the atmosphere of the Oslo Accords and the possibility of peace, even if it was sort of escaping our grip. And so there was more hope, I think, at that time than now. And of course, unfortunately, since then, Jews have been killed. And the Middle East peace process or the situation in the Middle East, I would say the confrontation between Israel and um, and the Palestinians has 
exacerbated frustrations from all sides and has created more violence outside of its own geographical territory. And so I don't know how to frame this conversation because I think the situation is probably worse today. And I don't think it's pessimistic to say that. I think that today, if Durban occurred, I think we'd be less surprised. I think it would be less of a big deal. Maybe I wouldn't have had to write a text about it because, you know, it was such a huge deal in 2001. But so many bad things have happened since then that I'm not sure how it would warrant such attention today. What's very interesting is that within the Jewish world, I think I'm always so moved by the fact that a handful of individuals can live a painful episode. And before you know it, the event becomes embedded in the consciousness of an entire people. And that question of memory and that question of, you know, the determination to recollect, that's a wonderful thing about the Jewish people. And I think that's a prime strength. But from a sociological point of view, I would say, what did Durban teach me? It taught me that a large majority of people can be very quickly manipulated by a small minority. Because not all friends of the Palestinian people are inciting to hatred and threatening Jews' security all the time. But in a few days, you can see how the message can be heightened, how your sense of security can be fragilized, and all of this thanks to a small minority of people. So that is a sociological example that I think we can really carry out 20 years later. You know, you mentioned the importance of memory, and certainly this is not an event that we want to forget. But is it an event that we want to commemorate? As I mentioned earlier, AJC has been urging nations to skip next week's commemoration, and so far 16 nations have bowed out. How should people and nations of goodwill appropriately remember what happened in Durban? I mean, clearly there's nothing to celebrate about this Durban document. But, you know, I don't think it was the Munich conference either. You know what I mean? I think, uh, I mean, yes, it was an indicator of historical turmoil. Yes, it was. So in that sense, it does have its historic role to play in measuring the level of interaction between the Middle East process and the consequences that it can have on Jewish individuals around the world. Yes, it was an indicator of that. But I would feel happy if the world actually ignores this conference <laughs> and doesn't give it the importance that it doesn't deserve to, you know, protest against it in that sense. I would prefer to focus on fighting racism today in all its different forms and on hate crimes against Jews around the world, which has certainly worsened. And uh, the state of the world is certainly worsening. So I wouldn't invest all my political energy in fighting the conference, but I, I applaud the governments who have the political courage to say no and not to attend it. I think that's fantastic. In other words, you wish the United Nations would acknowledge they made a mistake, move on, and address what's actually a real problem? Yes. And I think that there have been positive developments to a certain extent. For example, the UN issued a report on anti-Semitism for the first time in quite a while by the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief, Ahmed Shahid. So that is excellent, for example. And so there are moments to celebrate in the sense that we have to remain tied to multilateralism, and we have to make sure that we can play a role in multilateral organizations, and that's key, and that's very important not to sort of stereotype every single event that happens. But yes, and let's also not glorify <laughs> this conference, and let's make sure that it remains as 
invisible to the overall architecture of human rights as possible, because I don't think that it brought anything to the arsenal of UN tools that aim to combat discrimination and racism. Joelle, thank you for taking us back 20 years to understand these very troubling events. We really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me. People of the Pod will be on holiday next week, returning September 30th. In the meantime, don't miss last week's moving conversation between AJC's Laura Shaw-Frank and Wayne State University professor Saeed Khan about the impact of the September 11th terror attacks on the Jewish and Muslim communities. We hope you'll listen. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.